Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture today will be from Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we have been walking our way through Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And this week, we are going to finish chapter one. I don't think it would come as a surprise to anybody, or I would find much disagreement if I said that over the past 75 years, the culture of our town has changed a whole lot. (laughs) And if you go back 75 years, it would have benefited you to take on the label of Christian. You would have gained, it would have benefited you in terms of social status. It would have benefited your business. If you were looking for votes for something, it would benefit you to be a Christian. But about 50 years ago, you began to see a small group of people starting to say things like Christianity is outdated. And they weren't overly hostile towards it, but they, they were saying, we don't need Christianity anymore. It's out of date. We've grown beyond Christianity. And so you fast forward to today and that small minority view is the prevailing view practically as people live their lives. And now we have a small group of people who are beginning to say Christianity isn't just antiquated, but it's wrong. It's immoral and it's oppressive and we would be better off if we did not have Christianity in our society. So as a result, our children and our grandchildren are going to grow up in a culture very differently than we grew up and certainly very differently than our parents and grandparents grew up in. And it's a culture that more and more begins to look like Paul's context that he's writing in to the Philippians. We know that the Philippians, because of their faith, they're beginning to experience more persecution. They're beginning to experience uh, a faith that hinders their social status, a faith that hinders their businesses, and in, in many cases now, faith that hinders their very freedoms and physical well-being. And that's why Paul says to them, you are engaged in the same conflict that I had and now here I still have. Opposition to his faith. And so if if our culture is increasingly resembling this culture and our children and our grandchildren are going to relate more to this culture than maybe the one that we grew up in, it's a really good question to, to ask, what does Paul say to them? How does Paul say they need to operate in light of the persecution and the opposition that they're experiencing because of their faith? And Paul's answer, it isn't fight back. It isn't move away. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. 
So when Paul responds, he's telling them, I care mostly about what you do and how you act because your actions have huge effects on the advance of the gospel. God has ordained that the way we behave, the way we act, our manner of life, it affects the progress of the Great Commission. That's what Paul is saying here. So I want to look at that, this text and that statement, and I want to look at how it is that we should act, how it is that we should act as a church, and then lastly, how it is that that affects the world. So first, how is it that we should act? As individual Christians, our lives should display the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Our lives should display the gospel. And if we're not careful, you know, we could read this and, and think that in some way we, we need to earn the gospel. You know, it could sound like uh, you, Jesus died for you now. You receive it by grace, but now you really need to earn that grace. There was a movie years ago, probably coming up on 20 years ago, Saving Private Ryan. I'm assuming all of you have seen Saving Private Ryan. But there's this scene at the end where uh, Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, he's dying. He's just saved Private Ryan and he looks at him and he says, earn this. Make my death worth it. Is that what Paul is saying here? That we need to in some way make Jesus' death worth worth it by earning it no no that's not at all what Paul is saying Paul's saying we want to live lives that demonstrate the grace that we've received we want to live lives that illuminate the gospel of Jesus Christ we want to live lives that prove the power behind what we say to be true that's what we're doing we're not earning anything and I think you could go, just by reading the New Testament, you know, you could, you could know that Paul is not saying earn it. But even if this, these four verses were all we had, you can still know that Paul's not talking about earning anything because of the Greek word he chooses. He chooses one word that we have to translate as five words. Let the manner of your life. There's one word. Some of your translations might say conduct yourselves. And when he does this, he uses a word polis. The, the word's root is polis. And that word means city. It's where we get our word metropolis. Metro chief polis city, metropolis. And what he's doing here, it's not obscure. I'm not reaching. Literally every commentary I read pointed at the same thing. Paul is really intentional in the way he uses this word polis because he's eliciting this sentiment of citizenship. You know, they, Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were proud to be a Roman colony. They were a metropolis. And so they wanted to live their lives in a way that honored and glorified Rome. And Paul's now saying, you have a new name. Your name is Christian, and you get to live for a greater glory than Rome. You get to live for something more impressive than the Colosseum and something more sure than the Pax Romana. You get to live for Jesus Christ to put his glory on display to everyone you interact with. When I was growing up and acting a fool, my dad would, uh, on occasion, you know, just, it's kind of like when all other logic has failed. Well, Jim, you're a Davis. <laughs> and Davises just don't act this way. That's akin to what Paul is saying here. You have a new citizenship. 
You know, your, your citizenship isn't in puny Rome anymore. Your citizenship isn't in the United States or wherever it is that you're from. You have a greater citizenship. That citizenship is in heaven. You are called Christian and you get to live for that honor and that glory to put it on display. That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. And the real danger in this text is that we would read it and think Paul is simply saying that we are to be morally better than those who don't call themselves Christian. That we are to be more morally upright than non-Christians. And what that kind of reading of this text produces is Christians who are cynical, judgmental, who are condescending and insufferable. That kind of reading of this text produces Christians that maybe need a little more persecution in their life. Because thinking like that is fundamentally a selfish posture. It's a self-focused posture. Because we're saying at the end of the day, if our goal is simply, simply morals, then when I've attained that goal, I can say I'm better than that person. And that's not what Paul's teaching. That's obviously not what Jesus teaches. What Paul is pointing us to is an other focused posture, a selfless posture that isn't just trying to beat people by saying, look at me, I'm more moral. It's a life of sacrifice and self-giving so that we can put Jesus on display. So that they can see our hope through our lives. That's what Paul is saying, that we're not to be a self-focused, selfish Christian. We're to be an other-focused, selfless Christian that continually gives of ourself so that they can see our hope. So I was thinking, you know, how do we apply that in our context? Because our natural disposition is going to be towards the selfish posture. We're going to want to serve ourselves. The harder inclination is to be other-focused. And that's only going to happen by God's grace through the power of his spirit. And we're going to have to fight for that kind of posture in every decision that we make. But since it's election season, how can this others focused posture be on display in a world that has gotten more divided and polemic than, than many of us could have imagined? And I want to be careful here because I I don't want to insinuate that Paul is in any way saying don't have a strong political view. That is not what Paul's saying. But what Paul is saying in living a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we need to have our our priorities in line. We need to know what the most important thing is. Are we ultimately trying to win somebody to our side of the political aisle when we talk with them or are we trying to win them to our side of eternity? Because if our main goal is to win them to our side of the political aisle, then that is a very self-focused point of view. I mean, at the very least, we're just going to like that they agree with us, that we're right and they're wrong. Or maybe we deeply believe that the culture will be better for us if they vote the way I want them to. But at the end of the day, the ultimate goal is self-focused. It's not about them. So if our goal is to win somebody across the aisle, it might be that our cause is too small. So what does this look like? I I don't want to just say something and leave it hanging. I want to flesh this out. 
more important than how somebody votes is why they vote the way that they do. You know, if we're able to spend time with somebody and instead of just engage in a debate, we're able to really listen, to really understand why they vote the way that they do, then we'll often be much more successful at connecting their hopes and their desires to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we may or may not affect the way that they vote along the way, but it doesn't matter because that's not our main goal. Our main goal is to get to know people, to care about them, to listen to them, and then hopefully to make a very easy gospel connection with somebody that we now really know and care about. This isn't just a debate. When people engage in politics, they do so because they want to find value and hope in a very broken world. And when we can engage about value and hope in a very broken world and we listen well, guess what? We get to talk about the ultimate source of hope in, yes, a very broken world, Jesus Christ. So politics, if our goal is simply to get them to vote like us, can be a very frustrating life. But if the goal is to talk about value and hope in a broken world and to get to know people and get to care about people, then it can be a very fruitful endeavor. There's a guy named Francis Schaeffer who used to say if he had one hour to share Christ with somebody, he would listen for 55 minutes and then maybe have something meaningful to say. Because once he listened to them for 55 minutes, he knew something about them, about their hopes and desires and hurts and aspirations, and he was able to connect them to Jesus Christ. That is a selfless posture. That's a posture that mirrors the selflessness of our Savior who took on flesh and endured all the pain of this world to relate to us and ultimately save us. That's how we're called to act as an individual Christian in this world. But Paul's main point isn't an individual behavior, an individual manner of life. Paul's talking corporately to the church. So we have to secondly look at how we're to act as a church which I would say is the main thrust of this passage. So how are we to act, church? Paul gives us four things very specifically in verses 28, 27 and 28 that we are to do as a church if we are going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four things. Paul says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So four things in in those verses. And the first is that we are called to stand firm. Stand firm. The Christian life is a battle. You know, whether we realize it or not, the moment we believe, we are thrust into a spiritual battle. And the imagery Paul wants to use here is one of a Roman soldier standing firm, not giving the ground, and who is still standing at the end of the battle. That's what Paul wants to do. And if you read your New Testament, you see this is a theme that he, he comes back to over and over in all of his writings. So just three chapters later, Paul says, so then, excuse me, Paul says, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. To the Thessalonians, Paul says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And then most famously to the Ephesians. In in the Greek world, they didn't have 
you know, they didn't capitalize things or highlight or exclamation mark, but they did have tools to emphasize something. And one of those tools was repetition. So thinking about stand firm, let's look and see the repetition he has for the Ephesian church about the battle. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. As Christians, as a church, we are to stand We aren't to be tossed to and fro by all the waves of our culture. We are to be the rock that those waves break against and do so in a way that glorifies God and illuminates the grace that we're constantly telling people about. So what does that look like? Because I know how to stand firm. I know how to disagree, but I don't always know how to do it in a way that glorifies God. When I was on staff with crew, there there arose a theological debate. It wasn't a huge one, but it, but it divided the organization. So I was on one side of the debate and there was another side. And I remember one day we're literally in the same room and the lines are drawn, that side's over there, my side's over here. And I noticed, you know, the other side, they're really gracious and patient and loving and winsome in the way that they're disagreeing with me. And I look at my side and they're really all a bunch of jerks. And it, 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 we may have been theologically right, but they were disagreeing in a way that accomplished more good than we were. They were disagreeing in a way that put God's grace on display. They weren't budging, but they were loving. That's the kind of standing firm that Paul is calling us to here. So stand firm. Secondly, be united. Paul says that we're to be united in one spirit, in one mind. So does that mean that we all need to look alike and talk alike and dress alike and vote alike? No, that's not unity, that's conformity. And that's not what Paul is pointing us to here. So what does unity mean within the church? And I can't think of any place better to go and hear about unity than Jesus in John chapter 17. Jesus talking about the unity of the church says, I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given them, and here it is, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So do you see what Paul's saying? Our unity needs to put the unity of the Trinity on display. So what does that mean? Because the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is perfectly unified in mind and will, but beautifully diverse in persons. You see, so we're supposed to put on that kind of unity, a unity that expands across all kinds of diversity, not conformity. 
when universities started getting going in, in the Western Hemisphere, they usually had one school, mostly in Western Europe. And then they, you know, and it was usually law. And then they would add, uh, next was probably medicine and theology and architecture. And they had to figure out, what do we do here? We want to stay one school, but we want to have this diverse you know, offering of different faculties and colleges. And they, they went back to the Trinity. The Trinity is the only way that we know to explain unity and diversity. And so what they came up with is university. And in the same way, we're supposed to look to the Trinity in understanding the kind of unity and diversity that we want to present to the world. United in the gospel, unwavering in our united love for God and his faithfulness, standing firm as citizens, all of whom look differently, think differently, and act differently. And so what Paul is saying is the more barriers our unity transcends, the more significant a statement is made to the unbelieving world about the power of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. And Mark Dever, in his book, The Compelling Community, talking about exactly this, says, because of the extremity of their prior separation, so how diverse and different they were before they believed, because of the extremity of their prior separation, God gets more glory now in their unity. And Dever goes on to identify the five main societal barriers that we experience, the things that mostly divide us, that if our unity transcends these barriers, a larger statement about the power of God and the grace of Christ is made to the unbelieving world. And those five barriers are age, economics, politics, social ability, and cultural background. So we as a church, if one of our main, the main ways we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to display unity to the world, then we have to constantly be asking ourselves how many of these barriers does our unity transcend? And I'm not asking us to do, I mean, I know I'm walking a line here. I'm not saying we need to be exactly 50% or 33 of everything in every single category. It's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that there is this principle that is continually put ahead of us in scripture. Are we recognizing that the gospel is stronger than barriers? And is that manifesting itself in the church where we worship? So we stand firm, we are to be united, and then thirdly, we are to be striving. Paul says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this word strive, it comes from the Greek word athleo, and you don't need to know Greek to hear what word comes from athleo, athleo, athletics, that's right. So what he's what he's trying to give us a picture of are people coming together with different abilities, different skills, honing those skills to be able to, to pursue one united goal. That's what striving together means. And so I'll be honest, as a newcomer to Orlando Grace Church, uh, this striving together outside of Sunday morning, this is something new to me because this church is so spread out. You know, I mean, we have people who drive mind-boggling distances to come to Orlando Grace. So what does it look like for somebody in Longwood to be striving together with somebody in Conway? You know, 
this, this is it's a hard thing because we are, as much as we want to be a neighborhood church impacting this neighborhood, we are right now what's called a destination church. People come to us not because of where we are, but because of what we believe. And so what does striving look like in this very unique context? <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying to think about Paul coming here today. I think he would see pockets of OGC members in different areas of Orlando and Oviedo and Altamont Springs and Maitland because they live together in community, coming together to pray together, to support each other, to, to love each other. This usually is happening in the context of community groups, but it's not limited to that. I think Paul would look at you who do that and say, well done. You are striving together side by side. And I think the more that happens, the more these communities grow. And then we no longer have to decide whether we wanna be a destination church or a neighborhood church because we're a church that is affecting every neighborhood all over the greater city of Orlando. But we can't do that if we're not striving together. So we strive We stand firm, we're united, and then lastly, Paul says that we need to be unafraid. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And again, the Philippians, they were receiving persecution that was costing them social status, economic benefits, and freedom. You know, and and we come to this text and we think about the Christians being thrown in jail because of their belief, the Christians losing their jobs today because of what they believe. And I think that in some parts of the world, that is the sermon that needs to be preached. But I don't think that's the sermon that needs to be preached here yet. We need to ask, what ways are we afraid? What way are we, in what ways might our belief cause us fear and to not act in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't know for sure what Paul would say. (laughs) I I, I didn't have the opportunity to ask him. But I am gonna take a stab at guessing one of the things he might say. I think he would say to the modern 21st century American evangelical church, don't be afraid for your church to be messy. Don't be afraid for your ministry to be messy because one of the main marks all over the New Testament of a church that's growing and influencing the communities and seeing changed lives is messiness. That's the main thing we see. And in our, so, you know, Christianity, evangelicalism, and then you have the Reformed community. That's our our group, our group of people. One of the main tendencies, and I have been guilty of this as much as anybody, one of the main tendencies in the Reformed community is to love our doctrine more than the mission. I had a, my very first uh, seminary professor was a guy named Richard Pratt. And he said, when someone final, when some young man learns good doctrine, I just want to lock them in a closet until they're ready to start talking about Jesus again. Because I, I love our doctrine. I'm proud of our doctrine. But when we're afraid, when, our, when the main thing is our doctrine, we can begin to be afraid that our doctrine is going to be diluted in some way. And when that happens, churches all over the Reformed world begin to build walls on the outsides of their churches. And that divides the doctrine from the mission. And that's very practically how it happens. We can't be afraid to be in spaces where our doctrine is challenged. And I'm not talking about a debate. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really living life with people who don't believe what we believe. Really living life with people who 
are Christians maybe with another view or maybe they're not Christian at all and they see no point in Christianity. We can't be afraid to live in those spaces because the only doctrine that's pure is the doctrine that's battle-tested. And when our doctrine is battle-tested, not only is it pure, but we're sharpened and we get to really see it do what it's supposed to do. And we need to ask ourselves, why is it that we're afraid? Because Romans 5 says that we were an enemy of God. If I can think of anything to be afraid of, it would be that. We were an enemy of God, but Jesus rescued us. Jesus came into the world, he took on flesh, he bore the wrath that we deserved so that we would no longer be enemies, but children. We are now children of a heavenly God. And I think about the way I would treat my children. If I'm on a playground watching my children play and they're getting bullied or somebody is trying to lure them away with some lie, I would ferociously interact. I would ferociously engage. And we have a heavenly father who is infinitely more capable of loving and protecting and caring for us than any of us are with our children. So as we go forward, we can't be afraid to be in those spaces. My children aren't afraid at the park because they know I'm there. And likewise, when we live in these spaces around people with different worldviews, we can feel safe because we know that the God who was our enemy is now our father and he's watching over us like children. We're not afraid because we know where this story ends. We know we're on the winning side. And our call is to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stand firm, to strive together, to be united and unafraid. And when that happens, when the church does this, the world sees it. And so the last point and the briefest, how it affects the world. Paul says that when we walk collectively as a church in the manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become a sign to the unbelieving world. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we put up a sign, a sign that says Jesus is Lord. The sign that says our circumstances will not shake us, our resolve is not going to give, our fears will not grab us, we will not break because we know that we were enemies of the living God and we're now children. We were citizens of the United States or wherever else, but we are now citizens in heaven. That's the sign that we're putting up to the world and when they see this sign, Paul says that they will see their destruction and our salvation. And that sounds harsh. I know, in our day. But he's not looking to simply rub unbelievers' noses in our salvation. That's not what he's talking. He's not talking about going to a a prison and mocking the people behind the bars. He's talking about creating a sign that tells everybody how to get out. And that happens when we as a church walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, there's going to be one thing that comes along totally outside of our control that will make our sign brighter and bigger to everyone who sees it. And that thing is suffering. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
you know, it, it's sweet to hear, to sit down with somebody in a great season of life. Finances are good, family's good, health is good, and hear them affirm that God is good. I don't want to minimize those seasons. I want everybody to have those seasons. But there is a gravity when someone not in that season, when someone whose health is failing, whose money is lacking, whose kids are walking away, there's a gravity when that person says, God is good. And so the challenge we have as we put our sign forward is when suffering comes, as it will in varying degrees to all of us, are we going to see it as an opportunity? An opportunity to say with gravity, God is good. I know the grace I've received and the grace I will get at the end of this life. And compared to that, none of the trials of this world are gonna take hold of my soul. When suffering comes, we have the ability to put up a sign in a way that we just can't in any other season of life. So our culture is changing fast. It's more rapidly looking like the culture that Paul's writing to. And I was was thinking this week, when I was growing up in Orlando, there were two assumptions that I made about everyone that I met. I didn't know it at the time, but I did. I would assume that they were from Orlando and I would assume that they went to church. And you know the two assumptions I make now about somebody when I meet them? I assume they're not from Orlando and I assume they don't go to church. And there is a a healthy place to lament that cultural change. It's not good that our culture is looking the way it does, but we as Christians can't ignore the opportunity, the opportunity we have as our culture presses against us more and more to be a sign to the glory and honor of the living God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that our parents and grandparents' churches never could be. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves as we engage with this text is are we individually living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are we corporately living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the promise is if we are, this world will be affected. So I wanna finish by praying for exactly that to happen here. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for the believers here, even in this short time that I've been here, who are able to put on display your glory and grace in the midst of deep suffering. I thank you for those of us in easy seasons of life, and I pray that no matter the season of life, that your glory and grace would be displayed. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, for the Philippians, for what you've written to us through them, and we pray it would be true more and more in the lives of all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.